Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn. And in this episode, I talk to Michael Sean Comerford about travelling carnivals. Sometimes you don't have to leave your own country to find a culture that is different from your own. And Mike talks about the unique language, lifestyle and attitudes of the carnies, the people who work on travelling carnivals, how hard they work and why life on the road can be an attractive prospect, even while it has its inevitable dark side. We also discuss what freedom really means and why it's such a fleeting experience. This episode is a glimpse into a culture that we can only visit when we go to the carnival for a night, oblivious to what lies behind the lights and the spectacle. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Michael Sean Comerford is an award-winning journalist and travel writer. His latest book is American Oz, An Astonishing Year Inside Travelling Carnivals. So welcome, Michael. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm really interested to talk about this topic. But first up, what drew you to carnivals in particular and where did the idea for the book come from? Well, I had graduated from college here in the United States, and and I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I did something completely nonsensical, which is I decided to bicycle ride to Seattle, which is about a couple thousand miles and from Chicago. And on my way, I stopped to work at a carnival for a weekend on the 4th of July in Cody, Wyoming. Interestingly enough, founded by Wild Bill, uh, Buffalo Bill Cody who was the first uh, showman in the Showman's League, the official association of traveling carnivals. But anyway, I, I stopped there. I worked the weekend in the carnival, and I met these incredible people that had their their own language, their own history. They were living on the road. They were characters. And I go, I don't know what I want to do with my life, but if I ever write books, I think that this is really where the stories are. So it kind of was in my mind. I went off to become a journalist for almost 40 years, 30 some years. And I decided I wanted to come back and write books. And I remembered that vow to myself all those years ago in the Cody, Wyoming carnival. Maybe this is where the stories are. That's so interesting. So for 40 years, this kind of idea lay dormant. And <laughs> what do you think brought the idea back? Well, it, it uh, the newspaper industry is kind of drying up and I was looking for something else to do. And I was once again at the almost the same crossroads. What do I want to do with the rest of my life? Because I wasn't going to make a, a good living anymore as a newspaper reporter. So I thought of books and then I, I thought, well, why, why not start with, this is my first book. Why not start with American Oz and go to a lot of carnivals and tell a lot of stories? 
Well, it is really interesting. But I, I want to just, I mean, that we have listeners from 177 countries on this show. Yes. <laughs> so I actually wanted to start by asking about the carnivals in the USA, because you're in the USA, I'm in the UK, and our carnivals, we have, we really call them fairs, I guess. And they're quite different, I think, to the USA. So, so what are the carnivals like and what sets them apart from those other people might have seen in other countries? Well, when you see a fair versus a traveling carnival, you will think them pretty similar because of the rides and so forth. But they have very different histories. And I think one of the biggest things that sets them apart is language. There's something called carny lingo on the internet by Wayne Kaiser. And he goes through the lingo of uh, U.S. carnivals versus uh, Canadian carnivals versus British fairs. And he doesn't touch on Australia, but Australia has its very own also traditions. And uh, they have a different language. Here in the United States, they it, it's kind of faded away, and I believe it has so in Britain too. But Kazan is what they call it here in the United States, is a carny language. And uh, I think it's called Parlari uh, there in uh, Britain. I may be massacring it. Uh, Wayne, one thing that Wayne Kaiser said about the difference between carnivals in the U.S. and carnivals abroad is that uh, you better get the differences right. Otherwise, you're going to hear it from the aficionados in that country. He did something on BBC and got deluged by people objecting to what he had said about the differences between U.S. and British carnivals. But they do have different slangs. A galloper is a carousel, a roundabout a merry-go-round are all different. A gaff is a fairground. Uh, in the British uh, lingo, they will marry a lot of Romani, which is obviously from gypsy background, actually. And a lot of people over there don't like the gypsy heritage to that to their language. But here, uh, American carnival worker will say, hey, I'm part gypsy and be very proud of it. But there's uh, the penny gaff which is a uh, slang for a penny show, a cheap show. And these things are all very different. It all There's a strong bond in Britain, it says here on the Lingo uh, site, uh, that dates back to 1884. And George Smith, when there was a, a law passed in Parliament about movable dwellings bill, and they formed something called the United Kingdom's Van Dwellers Association. And they have a strong bond for these people who move town to town and they look out for their rights. Just coming back on the word uh, gypsy here in the UK now, and um, that is kind of considered a, an offensive term. And we use right. the term Roma for the Roma people, but it's not necessarily about carnival. It's also about people living in types of caravan, in types of social groups. And then we have Roma across Europe as well. So is so in, in America, is it people from this original ethnic group or no. is it a term that's been adopted? Yeah, it's just a, a generic term that's been adopted. Some gypsies are in carnivals, especially at mitt shows. A mitt show is a hand reading show. But no, I never met a gypsy on the road. And so it's not a strong tradition. It just made its way into the language like the parlari, which again, sorry for the mispronunciation, I, I'm just, I, all I know is I, what I've read, is part uh, 
Shelta and Gammon, which is a cant from the Irish tinkers, and part Yiddish, part Cockney, and part Romani, and part lingua franca. So it has a long, varied history there. The traveling shows that morphed into circuses, that morphed into carnivals. Carnivals are uh, an offspring of circuses, which which started in Britain. So you mentioned it, I guess, that on first look, there might be some similar rides. So the roundabouts and whirlers and things like that. Yes. but what makes an actual carnival? So, you, for example, you talk about showmen and the showmen's league before. It is a, a sort of proper carnival? Does it have humans displaying their strength or something like that? Well, they have some things like that. But basically, the difference between a, a circus and a carnival is a circus is usually under a tent and has more animals. And a, a traveling carnival is a movable feast. The carnival, uh, like in Venice and in old Europe and around the world, was connected to religious ceremonies. But after the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, where uh, electricity was introduced to, to a midway concept, and people started bringing this midway concept and movable f- rides and food and entertainment on the road, town to town, like these traveling minstrel shows, but with rides and not a lot of animal acts, mostly some sideshows, quite a few sideshows. So the difference, they are related, but they're strongly different in that a circus will be under a tent and usually will show elephants and lions and acrobatics and a traveling show is rides and games and sideshows. Well, in terms of the characters uh, in the book, you talk about carnies, showmen and sideshow freaks. And I think that brings up certain images in people's minds. So tell us about some of the people who stick in your mind in particular. Well, let me see. I want to back up because you were talking about the difference between the different countries. And a bally in the United States is a, a kamali. And that is something to bring people into your sideshow. So I have the Bally of American Oz. So from Alaska to Mexico, New York to Cali, from Dallas to Chi-Town, hear my Bally, change your life. It was meant to be win big money, free, free, free. Be shocked to be amazed on every page. Be younger, be smarter in a tech age. Say no to the square life. Say no to the blahs. Say yes to the wonders of American Oz. And so that Bally is made up and it's not really what they do on the on the road but one of the greatest bally talkers and some people call barkers was ward hall and he was in his 80s when i met him and he had run away when he was a young kid which is very common and gone to sideshows and he started out as a as an incredible talker on the road and i have an interview with him and he speaks about all the people he's worked with in his life. He said he had worked with giants, midgets, alligator men, bearded ladies, the monkey girl, pinheads, dwarfs, armless girls, the living half man, all these people he's worked with in the past. And he worked in Madison Square Garden, the Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall. He was inducted into every American circus and carnival hall of fame. And he was quite a character and and knew a lot of the history, but 
He was electric. There's a real sense of history that goes with carnivals all over the world. They love the fact that they have a history of show business and people feel part of something greater than themselves. And it's so interesting because I feel like almost in my mind, there's the sawdust and the sweat because it's really hard work doing all these tents. And it feels like a sort of far removed from the places in America with with people in their office blocks and things like this. Do these traveling carnivals visit the bigger cities or is, is it more of a sort of smaller town thing? Uh, they were everywhere. I was in uh, the big city here in Chicago. I'm now in LA, but when I started out, I was in Chicago and I, I was at the Puerto Rican Fest. I was at Midway Plaisance at the University of Chicago. I, there were gang members all around me and we were in the toughest of the toughest neighborhoods. And uh, there was violence sometimes on the Midway. But then we were in a lot of small towns where we were the biggest event of the year. And then, of course, I went to several carnival state fairs, and they're the biggest event of the year in most states, most rural states anyway. And we were the carnival part. And we go into the Minnesota State Fair or the State Fair of Texas, which is 21 days and gets a couple million people to come. And so carnivals are very alive inside of other things like they show up inside your small town annual festival and then the carnival will come and add the carousels and the roundabouts and the ferris wheels and then your state fair the the traveling carnival will show up from the next state over and work your state fair and then work the next state fair so they, it's funny that they're sort of an invisible group. That was one of the things that attracted me to them because they're sort of invisible and they're a different cast. There was a great book that was just written this year by Mary Wilkerson called Cast and uh, nominated for a Pulitzer. And it was it talked about how a caste system isn't only in places like India. It's here in America. And she talked a bit about how African-Americans are a different caste, but I would argue also that carnival people are. They're the working poor and often looked down at on, uh, upon because, uh, because they don't have health care and they may have bad teeth or they are poor. And when they get drunk, they get drunk outside. So you, you don't see that middle-class person getting drunk at home. You see them uh, walking around on the carnival and they're looked down on. And yet they are hardworking people with families. The people I knew were good, loving people. And they had lots of scoundrels, too, just like in every other walk of life. So in terms of the hardworking, I mean, I, I, I've i seen the result of these carnivals, but it always looks like so much work to move all these big things around and put up stuff and try and bring everything in. And, and it looks kind of crazy work. So what kinds of work did you do and how did it give you an insight into the way that the carnival works and kind of hides all of that from the, the customer? Well, no one's supposed to see how hard it is to do. I mean, even in book writing. People aren't supposed to see how hard it is to get to that smooth line or that clear insight. And that's the way it is in carnivals. One day it's an open field and the next day you have an entire fantasy city that has been raised up. And I would work 24 hours a day sometimes, sometimes longer, 28 hours, uh, no sleep and no breaks to set up a carnival and, and then get a few hours of sleep and then work the carnival. When it opened, and I worked the rides and the game, so I like to say I was pushing plush and slinging iron across the USA, 
And I worked in uh, 10 states and in 10 carnivals. And in Florida, the last state, I worked in a freak show, but I did, they didn't let me up on stage because they didn't see the inner freak in me. So, <laughs> yes, it's extremely hard work. And like I say, in this unfair world, these people work their butts off. At the end of the year, they have to struggle to find a home because the home is the road. There are no strict hours. So I write in the book that even when you go to sleep, carnivals run through your dreams. I mean, if you were on a traveling carnival, you're potentially always at work and you are working a lot and it's a hard job and it's low pay and the thanks you get is almost none. You just basically, the thanks you get is the lifestyle because people love it. Mm, so what, why do they love it? Yes, that's a big question. <laughs> When I first started on it, I was going, I can't understand this. I mean, really, this is below minimum wages. If you look at the hours and you are separated from your family. I had a daughter back in Chicago and I was traveling around the United States and it was heartbreaking for both of us. And these are people that do this for a living their whole lives and their dad did it and their mom did it. And uh, but it's addicting and it's show business and it is outdoor life. And uh, their alternatives sometimes are factory work and drudgery. And this is exciting and adventuresome. And they travel. And there is a solidarity and a friendship and a camaraderie that comes from working in a carnival. They always talk about your carnival family. I met so many people that had run away from home or had been orphans. One guy said to me, I've had foster homes, but this is my real family. And he looked around the Minnesota State Fair and he was talking about the couple thousand people that were working the state fair. I was thinking about that, this sense of belonging. I mean, when you work really hard together and you're sharing collective food and you're just working super, super hard, it breaks down a lot of barriers. I mean, I guess it's almost like the military, you know, people go and serve a tour with other people in the military and then they come back and they are away from that life and it just feels more empty. Right. And it sounds like that's almost similar, this really, really hard work. And then if you step away from it, like, where's your family gone? Right. Absolutely. I mean, when I left these carnivals, this is another shocking thing, is that I thought, well, why wouldn't you? <laughs> but I had to leave. I had to leave in order to get enough uh, to get a lot of carnivals in from Alaska to Mexico and New York to California. But they saw me as quitting and going back to they didn't know I was doing that. I worked without telling people what I was doing, that I was writing a book. I had to because I got fired from the first place. I told them the truth. So I had to keep doing the, that. I, I, I call it being a spy. But when I left, everybody said, I'm sorry that you have to leave, that I was giving up on the good life. I was giving up on the good life and leaving. And one guy said it to me, and it's not in the book. He said, I've talked to a lot of people when I get off the, he says, when I get off out of carnivals, he says, I go back to work in the uh, factory. And he was going back to work in the factory. He had a girlfriend who was pregnant and he used to have to go back. And, but he said, everybody I talked to has ever been in a carnival always talks about how shitty their life is now and how great their life was. It's interesting. There. I think a lot about freedom and what does freedom mean? And That's right. 
I mean, when you're working in these carnivals, like you said, you were sometimes working 24 hours a day. That's not freedom. That is working really hard for minimum wage, as you said. But then I guess that's like this climax of the event. And then you're pulling everything down again and you're on the road to the next place. And I guess there must be a sense of freedom in the lifestyle. And also, as you say, you're opting out of what most people do with their days, as in living in the same place and working the same job and I can see how it would have a a kind of freedom. Well, they think of it as free. That's for sure. And they think that their lives are free and they think they got it made. And we're the suckers. We're the marks. And they are with it is the phrase. They're with it. And uh, once you're not with it anymore, what is there? There is a lack of meaning out there because life seems to make sense in, in that insular world in there. And you're living in a, you're setting up a fantasy in all new towns everywhere you go and everything is new and there's new people every day. And if you feel free, you are, you know, they feel free. And um, I take that back because some do burn out on it and then leave. And so there is dissatisfaction with every kind of life. I don't want to over romanticize it. Yes. Well, that's important. And I did pick out a quote from the book where you said, where you find the greatest happiness, you find the most pain. So what was that darker side and some of the difficulties of the life? Well, there's addictions, there's violence, there's misbehavior. Some people go to carnivals to to flee another life. And so some people are on the run. And so there are some criminals in there. And there's abuse and there's homelessness after the year, the caste system, like I say. And most people by the end of the year are broke. And so by the end of the year, some carnivals will save your money for you if you stay there for the whole year and they'll give you a week or two of pay that you would have spent, but they ended up saving for you. A couple carnivals will do that. But, and oftentimes at the end of the season, you're broke again, and you've got to wait through the winter season. They call winter quarters. And you go back to your family's home or you do whatever. Some people went back to jail. Some people were uh, used the three hots and a cot to go back to jail. But most people go back to their family and live with them and do nothing. The Mexican carnies, which make up in some cases half or more of the big carnivals, they go back to their homes in Mexico and they do. there's no work for them for the next two to three months until they come back to the United States. And this is that dormant period of nothing to do and your savings going away to nothing. And every year you're not advancing. You're not building on something um, that has to wear on a person because really, unless you're an owner of a ride or of a carnival, things aren't getting better for you every year. Yes, And that's painful. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess it's that sort of living for the next high of the next performance and the the lights and the, the smells and the action and the new people. Those of us who go to carnivals, we enjoy going because it's like this escape from real life and it's just pure entertainment and sugar high. (laughs) And I can see how sort of being part of that, it's like, well, it's bad today, but 
there'll be another carnival and there'll be another high. And But it, this is so interesting because it is, it, it's sort of unrecognisable to most people's life. But I wanted to come back to something you talked earlier on about the history being connected to religious kind of ceremonies. And one of my favourite TV shows that actually got cancelled was HBO's Carnival, which was very much the supernatural and mythological aspects of Carnival. And I just loved that show. And it was about a travelling carnival and the people who, who worked that. So did you glimpse that side of things? Things are religious or supernatural or the superstitions and customs in a, a non-physical sense, I guess. Well, absolutely. Um, Ward Hall talked about that when I interviewed him. The Vatican has, they appoint a priest to traveling carnivals in the United States. They call him a carny priest. And the most recent one just died of COVID. I don't know who the next one is going to be. But the, at different state fairs, they have Protestant uh, preachers that come by our tents. And, uh, and when I was down in Mexico, I went to an evangelical gathering where people were speaking in tongues and fainting. And the preacher was talking about Exodus and about the traveling Jewish experience in the Bible to these traveling carnival people down in Mexico. There's a town in Mexico where all the men leave once a year. It's called Tlapacoyan to work up in carnivals in the United States. And when they re- go back home, there's nothing to do. And then they go to, um, in this case, I went down there to see them and they went to an evangelical gathering. And, and so there's this yearning in general through humanity to find something transcendent. And that's not absent in carnivals either. And so they have their priests and they have their preachers and they have their own beliefs. The priest doesn't usually, doesn't travel with your carnival. And uh, usually there isn't time enough to go to church on Sunday. So, but almost everybody is religious. And I had to cover that part because that's something in people's lives. They yearn for figuring out who they are in this world. Where do they fit in? And carnival people aren't any different. They're just doing it on the move. Well, that, I mean, that's the Christian side, absolutely. But what about things like tarot or palm reading and the occult side that people often expect at, at a carnival? There is some belief in that, and I didn't see a ton of it. I, I saw some belief in uh, juggalos, which are the insane clown posse. They had a rock band and still do. And They believe in a dark carnival where there's a murder carousel and people uh, dress up in clown masks and people show up at carnivals that way. And and some carnival people like wearing their shirts, but I didn't see a ton of of a cult or any of that. But I Mm. also didn't partake in the drugs and alcohol either. So I missed some of the experience. But (laughs) Well, you might not have remembered it. (laughs) If you had partaken. (laughs) But no, I mean, I think what's difficult as well, you talked about with the caste system and the opinion of uh, certain groups who are associated with carnival, these stories rise up around these groups in order to further stigmatize them. So whether there's a grain of truth or no truth at all, (laughs) that becomes part of the, the mythology almost. Certainly these sort of negative ideas have been associated with groups in Europe and then have been used as part of persecution. In the Second World War, you know, Hitler sent a ton of Roma to the camps. <laughs> Not and, just... and carnival people, and he stopped yeah. carnivals. 
Yes, exactly. So there's definitely an aspect there of 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 prejudice, but no, I, I find that really interesting. So I did actually just want to change tack because we're almost out of time. And uh, as you talked about, you've bicycled across the US, you've hitchhiked a lot, you've traveled to almost a hundred countries. And I wanted to ask about um, what does freedom mean to you and, and what does travel mean to you right now? Because obviously we're still in pandemic times and it's kind of started, but it's still restricted. What are your thoughts on travel and freedom in, in this world we live in now? Well, I, I I recently am now finishing a book this year, uh, last year, actually. I took off in the winter and bicycled on Route 66, which is in America, a road from Chicago to LA, 2,500 miles all the way, and uh, much sung about and written about in The Grapes of Wrath and, and On the Road and in other books. And I uh, bicycled that and asked people about COVID. And so I had over 100 interviews, and I'm going to call it the beast of Main Street, I believe. And I asked people about their lives amid COVID. And I think people are kind of, well, I'm focused on that. But what does freedom mean even during these COVID times? I think that just like that belief in the transcendent, I think that people need it and, and want to do it, and they can hardly wait to get back to it. And But it it is transcendent. And in my case, the word wanderlust doesn't really say enough about it because I'm fixated on travel. If I could do it all the time, I would. But I storytell along the way. And I did it through journalism. And now I'm doing it through these books. And I think that freedom is a fleeting feeling that comes in the doing. And same with travel. And as you're traveling, there are just times that you feel free, and that is freedom, and just like happiness. When I, I hitchhiked between these 10 carnivals, and, and I wrote on my blog as I was going along, I had a blog called Eyes Like Carnivals, and uh, I wrote that some of the freest days, the days I felt the most free was on the back of a pickup truck, <laughs> going down the interstate at 65 miles an hour. Uh, a bump could push me right out of that, that, that pickup truck. But I just felt the wind going through my hair and I was hitchhiking across the Hudson River and I was hitchhiking down through Florida. And I just go, man, this, I don't know what freedom is. It's indefinable. I think that once you're feeling it, it's almost gone. But man, this feels free. And uh, there was a lot of that in the hitchhiking portion of this book. And But the hitchhiking also helped with the connections because everybody wanted to talk about a carnival. But I love your, I love this series because it does try to get at the deeper levels of what travel means to people. Uh, and carnivals are a way of life and people are traveling constantly and they, and they are uh, looking for meaning in life on the road. They're looking for love and family on the road and it's like a drug. You can't live inside it constantly. But when it shows up, it's a real high. Oh, that's great. So as this is the books and travel show, do you have any books that you could recommend about carnivals or I guess about travel in general? You know, I thought a lot about this and I'm going to give you books that uh, you might have thought of, but Travels with Charlie, with Steinbeck and On the Road with Kerouac and Studs Terkel's Working because that isn't a travel book, but it's about common people. 
Uh, Sarah Vowell's assassination va- uh, vacation is hilarious, and she does so many. But also, Bill Bryson cannot be beat. He's my favorite writer who writes about places and a variety of things, including the sunburned country about Australia. And uh, Paul Theroux and Hunter S. Thompson's loathing, Fear and Loathing in, in Las Vegas, Mark Twain, Life on the Mississippi, and uh, these are all very classic. They Susan might Orlean, Orchid Thief, and uh, Cheryl Strade's Wild, uh, <laughs> Alice Monroe. And uh, so all of these are fabulous. And you just can't lose if you if you catch a great writer writing about uh, a road. And uh, right now, the greatest writing in the world is being done by one Paul Salopek, a former Chicagoan at the Chicago Tribune, two Pulitzer Prizes. He is walking around the world in a project called the Out of Eden Walk, and he calls it slow journalism. And uh, he is telling incredible stories as he goes along. And he meant to take it around, walk around the world for seven years. It's seven years, and now he's just in uh, China. <laughs> so... He might be there for uh, COVID, a while. <laughs> COVID, uh, COVID slowed him down. and uh, But he is a wonderful writer. And if you take one thing away from my recommendations, it's get online and uh, look, check out Out of Eden Walk by Paul Salopek. Brilliant. So where can people find you and your books online? I'm at uh, michaelseancomerford.com. And uh, you can find me anywhere if you just put in American Oz by Michael Sean Comerford, and then pretty soon it'll be Beast of Main Street. And uh, yeah, that's the way to find me and hopefully more books down the line. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Michael. That was great. All right. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.